Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church, and uh, it's just a delight to be with you this morning. Last week, I began a preaching series that I've entitled Reasons to Believe. In essence, this, this series is designed to put the claims of secularism and the claims of Christianity side by side so we can examine what each says and, 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 and which of the two make better sense of the world and our experience of it. Here's the truth, at least as I see it. So often as we make our way in this world, as, as Christians, we're, we're being told to think and act in a certain way and, and culture exerts a different kind of pressure and we find ourselves often in a place where the claims of Christianity and the claims of, uh, of secularism are actually competing claims. They don't say the same thing about the way the world is or the way it should be. And unless we are thoughtful about the Christian faith, inevitably what happens is that culture has a kind of gravitational force and it just sucks us along with it unthinkingly. And so my hope is that this week and in the weeks to come, that I can make a case that Christianity actually makes a better case for the way the world really is than the secular claim. Tim Keller writes the following. Not long ago, leading scholars in Western society were nearly unanimous in thinking that religion was inevitably declining. They thought the need for religion would go away as science provided better explanations than God ever did. In 1966, John Lennon, lead singer of the Beatles, represented this consensus when he said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. However, this hasn't happened exactly as advertised. Those who study um, the demographics at a world level now suggest that the 21st century will be far less secular than the 20th. In sub-Saharan Africa, in China and Latin America, there have been absolutely massive shifts towards Christianity. Numbers suggest that four out of five people on planet Earth believe in God, not are Christians, but have faith in God. That's 80% of the world's population. And the question we need to ask is, why? Perhaps it's because reason and science cannot explain everything. William Jennings Bryan writes, science is a magnificent material force, but it is not a teacher of morals. It can perfect machinery, but adds no moral restraints to protect society from the misuse of the machine. Science does not and cannot teach brotherly love. And so it's false to suggest that a Christian worldview is based on blind faith while secularism is based on evidence. That's simply not the case. Many secularists hold to what could be termed an exclusive rationality. It's the idea that nothing can be held to be true unless it can be proven through empirical observation, which is to say, scientifically. But a commitment to this exclusive rationality undercuts most of what most Western people hold to be true. And I don't simply mean Christian Western people, all Western people. Take, for example, a number of truths that our culture holds to be self-evident, like the need for justice, or 
the, 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 the dignity and value of all human persons or human rights. None of these so-called evident truths can be proved uh, by empirical observation. And yet many secular people would, would fight for and, and even die for these truths. Keller writes, we should therefore stop demanding that belief in God meet a standard of universally acknowledged proof when we don't apply that same standard to the other commitments on which we base our lives. As I think about all kinds of things, beliefs and values that are present in our, in our secular society, I I, just this week, I've just sort of concluded in my mind that modern secularism, in, on many counts, has plundered and plagiarized Christianity. But it's made just enough changes that its ideas have the air of originality. So I, I just mentioned some of the, the deeply held values of, of secularism, things like justice, equality, and, and the dignity of the human person. These ideas have been stolen from Christianity and then stripped of Christ himself. And I'm not the only person to recognize this. Nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche pointed out this error again and again, arguing that one cannot discard faith in God, but still argue for all of its values and ideals. It's a package deal. And so when you believe in a personal God, who created humanity in its image and established right and wrong, you've got a solid foundation. But the moment you remove God, there's no foundation. And so one can still insist on the dignity of the human person, but there's no moral authority to do so. Now all there is is simply preference, yours or mine. Keller concludes, to hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but to then insist that nonetheless every person has a human dignity to be honored is an enormous leap of faith against all evidence to the contrary, which is to say you can't argue it both ways. A commitment to a secular worldview requires faith. Secularism contains a, a, a series of beliefs about the way things are or the way things should be that cannot be proven and, if held, actually undercuts the material-only reality that secularism de 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 defends. And so, rather cheekily as Christians, we can say to our secular friends, whose faith makes more sense, yours or mine? It requires faith to believe both. And what I want to do this morning is I want to turn our attention to, uh, to a single subject that is deeply personal in our culture and is actively being worked out in homes and in, in, in schools and businesses and government, and the subject in question is freedom. I don't think there is a value in our culture that is more fiercely held or cherished than that of freedom. In one respect, we could study history through the lens of freedom, and what we would find is, is masses of, of people groups coming together according to ethnicity at times or economic status in order to throw off their oppressor and all done in the name of freedom. My, my ethnic and, and sort of cultural background is, is that of the Mennonites, and if you were to trace the history of the Mennonites, again, you can see them in history running from country to country from continent to continent at times, all in the name of freedom. 
the freedom to practice religion in the way that they want, freedom to practice education in the way that they want. In the early 1900s, the suffrage movement was about women and men fighting for women's freedom to vote. In the 1960s, in the civil rights movement in the United States, Martin Luther King and many others were fighting for rights and freedoms of African Americans, freedom to drink from the same water fountains as white people, freedom to go to the same restaurants, to sit in the front half of the bus, to vote, to go to good schools, to be treated as equals. And this fight for freedom has brought enormous good But my question these days is, has it gone too far? Listen to what Charles Taylor writes. He wrote a book by the name of A Secular Age, and he summarizes the current thinking on freedom in our culture. He says, let each person do their own thing, and one shouldn't criticize the other's values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. The only sin which is not tolerated, as we all know, is intolerance. Now, let me just press pause for a second, and I want to redefine a term that I I defined last week. The term is secularism. I I refer to secularism or a secular age or a, a secular person as being the one who has dismissed the notion of God. This notion of an afterlife has also been dismissed, and in light of these realities, a universally held standard of right and wrong has been abandoned. In such an age as ours, There, of course, are things that are considered right or wrong, but they've become arbitrary terms, terms that are subject to cultural whims. What's right today may be wrong tomorrow. And, of course, we all have our own personal convictions on right and wrong. But in the absence of God, nothing and no one has any claim on the way that you choose to live. And so the question becomes, is this the kind of freedom that is helping our society? Or does this kind of freedom actually harm us. Tim Keller writes, the ideal of individual freedom in Western society has done incalculable good. It has led to a far more just and fair society for all kinds of people, including minority and women. But, Keller says, it's also false. Freedom has come to be defined as the absence of limitations or constraints. By this definition, the fewer the boundaries, the freer we feel ourselves to be. But held in this form, I want to argue, says Keller, that the narrative has gone wrong and is doing untold damage. I want you to think with me for a moment about how freedom actually works in real life. If we define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, we will quickly find ourselves at an impasse because that's not actually how freedom works. I want you to imagine for a moment that with the snap of my fingers, all of you here today are now grandparents, a grandfather, a grandmother, and suppose with me that you absolutely love spending time with your grandchildren, but I want you to also suppose that you detest physical exercise, and love to eat unhealthy food. Deep-fried, processed, sugar-laden food. You can't get enough of it. Now, when you go to your doctor for your annual checkup, undoubtedly, she is going to be alarmed. Your blood pressure will be off the charts. Your cholesterol levels are, are frightening. And she will prescribe an immediate course of action, diet and exercise, And here comes the dilemma, because these two freedoms 
are competing against one another. The freedom to avoid habits of diet and exercise over time will make it impossible for you to enjoy your grandchildren. In fact, you may not be around to know them. No one, no one is free to exercise all the freedoms available at the same time. And so as a high school student, you may be free to ditch school regularly, but the exercise of this freedom makes it unlikely, even impossible, to enjoy good grades and to secure entrance into university. You may, as an autonomous individual being, feel the freedom to run off your mouth whenever you want, to direct harsh words at the people all around you, but this use of freedom is at odds with in my perspective, a much more important one, the freedom to be in relationship, the freedom to give and to receive love. And so, as Keller suggests, real freedom is found in the strategic choices we make. We choose to give up certain freedoms in, hold on, in order to hold on to what we deem to be most important. Freedom, then, is not the absence of constraint. Instead, it is the choosing of the right constraints and the right freedoms which we will lose. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going to leave the definitions behind just for a moment, and I want you to think with me about the other side of freedom, namely responsibility. See, Western secularism prizes absolute individual freedom, and many make the claim that, that they are responsible to no one but themselves, and that no one has a right to tell them how to live. But to claim such absolute individual freedom is to conveniently ignore all of the facts. There is no such thing as a self-made person. Yes, in one regard, our lives are a product of, of our individual choices, but think of the many, many, many people who have sacrificially given to invest in you and who you've become. Parents and grandparents and neighbors and teachers and doctors and nurses and friends, and the list goes on and on. Now, do we have any responsibility to these people? And after all we've been given, do we not have a responsibility to invest in others? Or is it just that people need to invest in us so that we can live simply for ourselves? You see, when personal freedom is detached from personal responsibility, all we're left with is a self-centered narcissism. In the not-so-distant past, there was significant consensus, even in Canadian culture, around what constituted the common good. Now it seems that all that matters is what's good for me. Let me share one last thought, and then we're going to get to our biblical text this morning. Many Western people are, generally speaking, quite happy to leave the, the morality and, and the boundaries that come with it in the past. When secular people talk about limiting freedom, they do so in accordance of what we might call the harm principle. It goes like this. People should be free to do whatever they want as long as they don't harm anyone 
anyone else. But, but again, the problem with this is that the principle only works if we all agree on what harm is, and we don't. And so a student might, or young adult, or unfortunately older men, <laughs> might say, what's the harm in gaming eight hours a day? Or what's the harm if I work hard all week to getting drunk all weekend? Or, 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 or what's the harm in smoking marijuana recreationally? Or what's the harm in having multiple sexual partners? Or what's the harm in leaving my spouse for someone who makes me happier? What's the harm? Now, in the absence of any kind of moral guidelines, we twist the harm principle to our own purposes. If I really want something, then clearly it cannot be bad. Our own desires become the measure of all things, the measure of what's good. And more often than not, we're primarily concerned about our good, not your good or the common good. At this time, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with me, if you have one. Turn with me to John chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from verses 31 to 36. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. And here, what we find is Jesus engaged in this lengthy back and forth debate with those who, who stand opposed to him. Jesus is going to talk with them about freedom. And though we're not going to get to the end to, to see how they respond, just just, just know that, that they're not real happy about, about what Jesus says or what he means by it. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to the city of Chicago? Okay, number of you. Years ago, I found myself at a conference in, in Chicago. We had the afternoon off, so we made our way downtown. We were walking in the inner city. It's, it's actually, it's a beautiful city, and we were enjoying ourselves. And as we were walking down this one particular street, I saw a placard on the side of the building, and it said the Chicago Tribune, like the newspaper, fam famous, world famous. And so me and some of my friends I was with, we decided to go in. And as you walk into the building, there's, a, there's like a, a big open foyer with a vaulted ceiling and impressively etched in stone all around, there are a number of quotes, all of which have to do with freedom or truth. And there, etched in stone, I read these words, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I know that quote. Jesus said that. Many of us know that quote. In fact, many people who don't know anything about Jesus know that quote. But sadly, these words, more often than not, have been lifted from their original context and then used to express the idea that truth in and of itself has this innate power to set people free. Knowledge equals power. Knowledge equals freedom. Sadly, as you and I both know, that's not how it works. I want you to think for a moment about all of the things that you know, 
All the things that you know that are good for you, good for us, good for everyone, things that you haven't put into practice. It's probably a a lengthy list. We all know that responding to people in anger isn't a good idea. When we're angry, we often say and do the wrong things. We make matters worse. Almost never do we make them better. But knowing this truth is not enough. It, It doesn't help anyone. Freedom comes when we abide by this truth when we learn to limit our tongue, when we're angry. See, what Jesus says here in John 8 with respect to truth amounts to an if-then promise. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, the truth that Jesus is, is, is speaking about is bound up with knowing him listening to him and following him. And there's really no wiggle room in what Jesus says. The degree to which we hold on to Jesus and follow in his way is the degree to which we will experience the freedom God promises. And Christian freedom consists in two parts, freedom from sin and freedom for God and others. So first, let's look at freedom from sin. Sin is a, is, a, is a distasteful word. It's seen as old-fashioned. Some would consider it actually to be a dangerous word because this word reinforces the idea that, that there actually is a standard of, of right and wrong. And when a culture rejects the notion of God, automatically it, it must reject a universal standard of, of right and wrong. So long as we don't hurt anyone, we should be free to do whatever we want or at the very least to pursue what seems right to me. As I think about where we are right now, it, it, it's remarkable when I think about it, how quickly up has become down and down has become up. It wasn't that long ago that sin was understood to be a turning away from God, a turning to self, and this turn to self, the, 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 the pursuit of self was actually seen to be dangerous. It would lead to slavery. Well, today, the turning from God towards self is seen to be the ultimate good and the only true path to freedom. How quickly things change. But this pursuit of unfettered freedom isn't working. If it was working, if freedom really was as good as everyone says, and, and pursuing my ends and not limiting your ends, if it really worked, then one would think we'd be hurting one another less We'd be enjoying life a lot more. Things would be easy, simple, and straightforward. There would be fewer complaints, arguments, conflicts. But of course, this isn't what we find. When will we realize that the pursuit of self-rule isn't working? That it won't ever work? Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. When we make our desire the measure of all things, we become enslaved by them. In fact, whatever we pursue in life, whatever we make ultimate becomes our master. Absolute freedom, I hate to burst anyone's bubble here today. Well, not really. Absolute freedom is an illusion. And if that's the case, then we need to choose our master carefully. Which master will lead to a life of greatest freedom and satisfaction? 
Let's think for a few moments about, we've talked about freedom from sin, now let's talk about freedom for God and others. As we get older, we tend to stay up later. Maybe our parents buy us our our first mobile phone. We get a bank card at, at some point when we turn 16, our parents hand over the keys to the car. With age comes increasing freedom. That's how it works. And as Westerners, we, we tend to associate growth and maturity with increasing freedom to do whatever we want. But when it comes to relationship, this way of thinking actually cuts against the grain of relationship. Think for a moment about every experience of love you've, you've ever had. And maybe more specifically about the love you've received from someone close to you, a family member, a, 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 a deep friendship, a, a spouse. In so many respects... The experience of love sets us free. When we know we are loved, we are free to be ourselves. We don't don't have to pretend. When we know that we're loved, we're free to try things and fail, and we're not afraid that that we're going to be rejected if we fail. The experience of love is perhaps the most freeing thing in the entire world, but the deeper the relationship we're involved in, the more we have to give up our independence. You can be in love, or you can be free and autonomous, but you can never have both at the same time. For the Christian, the freedom that comes from love is bound up with following Jesus. As we limit some of our personal freedom, to do what we want, when we want, and instead choose to follow Jesus, what we begin to experience is peace, joy, and a love that actually makes us feel free. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus expresses a truth that many people all over the world have experienced personally. When we look at our own lives and we label it mine, When we live for ourselves, pursuing our own desires without constraint, we end up with a life, many of us, we don't actually want. When we live with this kind of unrestrained freedom, we don't actually feel free. We often feel bound, stuck. But when we hand over our life to the one who made us, the one who knows how all of life works, the one who knows how we work, we find a life that's actually worth living. And this brings us right back to something I said earlier. True freedom is found in the strategic choices we make. We give up certain freedoms in order to hold on to what we deem to be most important. In this life, I'm arguing that choosing to follow Jesus is the right constraint and will lead to the greatest and most satisfying freedom. We are not self-made, not any of us, nor are we meant to live a self-directed life. And what Jesus does is he invites us to give him full access to our priorities, our pursuits, to the things that we love. Hear me when I say this, the degree to which we walk in alignment with Jesus is directly connected to the depth of freedom and joy we will experience. When we follow Jesus, We are free to finally be ourselves. We find joy in knowing that we're living out God's purposes through our lives in this world. 
The joy God gives makes it possible to to see the people around us who may have more and, and may even appear to have more freedom, but to still live free from a spirit of jealousy. It's entirely possible in this world to have less and to still have more. Less freedom to choose whatever you want, I would argue, actually puts you on a path that brings us to satisfaction. This morning, we come to the Lord's table and we partake in a holy meal that has nourished Christians for 2,000 years. This meal is part remembrance, it's part celebration, and it's part encounter, for we come to this meal to meet with Jesus himself. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks for it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup and when he'd given thanks for it, he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we're regularly told in this era, there is no God. You are purely a material being and this life is all that there is. But in spite of this narrative, all of us are incurably spiritual creatures. We hunger for meaning, we thirst for significance, we long for the transcendent. And the pursuit of the material can't satisfy these longings. Jesus himself is the solution to our soul's hunger. In in John 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I think we could all agree that forever is a really, really long time. And so when we wait in traffic for 20 minutes, stuck and not moving, and we say, it's taking forever, it isn't. And when we are hunting for a new job and we can't find the thing that fits us perfectly, we say, this is taking forever. It isn't. And even if we live for 40 years with chronic pain and it feels like forever, it isn't. Forever is a really, really long time. In fact, it's impossible to use the word time and forever in the same sentence because time has a beginning and an end. Forever doesn't. In John 6, verse 40, Jesus said, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, forever life. God's desire for you and me would be for us to look to Jesus, to put our trust in Him, that we might have a life with Him and with all that is good that will never, ever end. So there are really no barriers to you coming to Jesus, not your gender, your ethnicity, your age. They don't disqualify you. The parents you have, the place you grew up, your past failures, none of those things disqualify you either. Jesus came to give you life. And what Jesus did is he he carried our sin and our shame to the cross. He died in our place for our sake. And the Bible regularly describes sin as breaking relationship with God, ignoring God, rejecting God, seeking satisfaction apart from God. When we do these things, we cut ourselves off from the only one who holds life. And as you read through the scriptures, the Bible describes becoming a Christian in all kinds of different ways, but, but here in John 6 verse 35, it's described simply as coming to Jesus 
and believing in Jesus. When we come to Jesus, there's certain things that we need to leave behind. No doubt, we leave behind some of our freedoms. We leave behind self-reliance, our pride, our achievements. Becoming a Christian means coming to Jesus and believing in Him. We give up the notion that we can live life without God. We give up the notion that we make ourselves right before God and we come to celebrate the truth that it's Jesus' perfect life and His sacrifice on the cross that makes us right with God. It's not up to our effort. It all depends on God's mercy. We cannot save or satisfy our own lives. We need Jesus. And this morning, I invite you to come to this table to feed on Christ in your hearts by faith. This time, I want to invite those who are going to be serving the bread and the cup to come and and find their place. We're going to have three stations here on the the main floor, up in the balcony. We have one station on my right and another to my left. Um, Just one brief instruction. In light of the cold and the flu season that is upon us, um, um, both up top and, and here on the bottom, we have some hand sanitizer that are just on the ends of the aisles. Make sure you put a little bit in your hands and let's, let's do our part to make sure we don't, we don't make one another feel worse. So I'm going to hand things over to Rich and the band. They're going to lead us as the music begins. Feel free to come beginning at the back row and making your way to the front. That guides my 